Hey, we are, um, we, are using, we are getting ready to start a new sermon series and um, using the backdrop of the uh, NBC series that just came out on television, AD, The Bible Continues. Um, we're going to be starting to look at the book of Acts and exploring uh, this movement of the early church. And so I get the privilege of getting to, to preach here on a morning between series. If you've been here at all over the past few months, we've been going through the series called Game Changer, where uh, Tom has is taught on a series of events where people encountering Jesus have had game-changing moments in their life, being able to see God and be drawn towards God in, in new and powerful ways. And so in the coming 10 weeks, uh, Tom will be preaching on this first half of the book of Acts along with uh, the t- TV series. And I'm just curious if any of you out here got to see the first episode. It came out last Sunday on Easter Sunday. All right, a handful of you. Uh, it's, actually, it's really good. I saw the first one. Um, and so that's where we're going here in the weeks to come. Um, but like I said, this morning I get the opportunity to talk about the book of Acts, not so much the specific stories in it, but where it falls in the bigger story of God. And so um, the Jesus' resurrection signaled the beginning of something new. This Easter celebration that we had last week, this is the beginning of something new that we celebrate. And we shared in um, the first followers of Jesus who were convinced of his resurrection, they shared this message because they believed that it was worth living for and dying for. And we believe that it still is. 20 centuries later, this new beginning that happened in the book of Acts is still as vital as ever because the book of Acts is where we find the beginning of our story. Now, I want to go through a real quick exercise with you here at, at the beginning, um, and hopefully this is something that you, you might ha- find helpful. If you grab a Bible out of the pew in front of you and you flip to the table of contents, or if you go to the table of contents on your Bible app on your phone, um, I just want to j- just go through something really quick. This is a... Um, uh, the, the Bible is a collection of writings. So this is 66 different books that have been collected. They were written over a period of 1,500 years. They were written in three different languages, and yet they share one cohesive story about God and his people. And so what I want to look at is as you look at the table of contents there, first just locating where Acts is in the Bible, if you're not familiar. You see the New Testament right there after the Gospels. You see the book of Acts listed. But I want to explore a little bit further is where we find the book of Acts in the story, not just in its order that you find it in the Bible, but where in the story of God. And so what I'm going to, this kind of uh, model I'm going to share, this comes from N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is a New Testament theologian today. Um, He teaches on on narrative theology and how to read the Bible. He wrote a book called Scripture and the Authority of God. And if it's that's your thing and you're interested in studying this deeper, you could, you could look into that book. Um, it's, it's a great way, and we've used it a lot with college young adult students in our classes to discuss more on how we can be uh, good readers of the Bible, better understanding the Scripture in the context in which it, w- it was written. And so he essentially offers this model. You think, as you look at that list of books there in your table of contents, to think of these as all contributing to one story that is a five-act play. Right? Like if Shakespeare had a play and it took place over the course of five different acts, to think of it like this, because there are these five different acts in which God relates a little bit differently with his creation. And in the first act is creation. Uh, we read in the very beginning that God created the heavens and the earth. He created man and woman, and he created us in his image, and that it was good. And there's this relationship. But in act two, something changes. There's the fall. Sin enters the world. Creation rebels. There is evil and idolatry that become real features of this world. There are consequences for the brokenness now that man has between himself and herself and the creator. These first two parts of Acts, these first two acts or chapters of, of the story come in the book of Genesis. Um, 
And from there out, from Genesis, the rest of Genesis, from Abraham onward, is where we find um, up through the prophet Malachi, as you look at those list of books, the end of Genesis through Malachi, this is Act 3. This is the story of Israel. This is the story of a people, a nation where in this broken creation, God decided to call a people to be set apart for him, for, for him, for the rest of the world. And so that takes us all the way up to the New Testament where we see the Gospels and we have Jesus, Son of God. He comes and walks in flesh among us to live and to teach us how to live. And so Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that we read in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that is Act 4. That's the fourth part of the story. It's the climax. That's the thing that the entire Acts preceding it were building up to. Everything through the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Law was pointing towards this moment where Jesus would come and be on the scene. And it ends with resurrection, the inauguration of a new kingdom with a new king. Now, Act 5 this is where you find the book of Acts. So the, the book of Acts in the Bible is also the beginning, the story of this fifth chapter, fifth part, fifth act of God's story. And so when we read scripture, it's helpful to understand which the scripture we're reading it in the context in which it was written in this. And this is the scene in Acts where you and I have been invited. The church is the people of God in Christ for the world. The church is the people of God in Christ for the world. Our job is to act in character, to live out this fifth part of the story, because unlike the other four parts of the story, it's not over. We've been called into it. We are joining in God's work, again, in, le- in living this new kind of life in a new kingdom led by a new king. So what we're going to do now is we're going to sort of examine this and how this started. How does this fifth act get its beginning and what all happens there? And after the resurrection, Luke tells us something at the beginning, how Jesus reveals himself to his disciples. He teaches on the kingdom of God, and then he leaves. And then early in the story, we read about the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes um, And all of a sudden, what was this, just few hundred people who live in Jerusalem who had seen and heard Jesus teach and who were following him, all of a sudden, 3,000 are added to their numbers. And it doesn't stop there. The churches begin to explode and to grow all around the Mediterranean. If you looked at what was known in, in the West at that time, we begin to see the church expand. And it's growing in spite of persecution. This is a church that doesn't have resources. This is a, a, a group of people. They don't have much to, to leverage, but they continue to grow. And what happens next, we look at history and what, what documents, what's documented after the New Testament letters were written. And guess what? It keeps growing and growing. And then the unthinkable happens, something that no one would have guessed. By the fourth century, Christianity becomes the dominant religion in Rome. By the end of the fourth century, it becomes the state religion of Rome. And the next thing you know, it's here in Bloomington, Indiana. Okay, we skipped over a few few centuries there. But The point is, what happened with this small group of people began to grow rapidly and didn't stop. It continued to grow and grow, and it did something that we read in the fourth act that was predicted. It would reach the corners of the world. It would reach the ends of the earth, and it is reaching the ends of the earth. So 
but the question I want to stop and ask is, how is this possible? How could this small group of people, this small group, uh, this sect of Judaism that was persecuted by Rome, how could that possibly grow and to overtake when they didn't have anything really to leverage? Um, and so, before we answer how and look at that, I want to f- do a flashback real quick. We're looking here in this fifth act, the beginning of the church. We're going to look back real quick to a couple of moments where Jesus is with his disciples, where he kind of talked about some things that would happen. And so, one of them is found in John chapter 13, verse 35. Jesus simply says this to his disciples. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, implication, if you don't love one another, they won't know you're my disciples. They won't associate you with me. Matthew chapter 16, then a different moment. Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Now real quickly, Caesarea Philippi, this place that Jesus has taken them, okay, this is Vegas of the day. This is a center of pagan worship. This is about 25 miles north of Galilee and this is where the Greek god Pan was worshipped. You know, in the centuries before this, there had even been human sacrifices offered there. In that day, by that time, the Greek culture had stopped with the human sacrifices, but there was a lot of pagan worship things that I'm not going to read about out in here because that'd be embarrassing for all of us. Some of you are sitting by your parents. And um, yeah, so the, um, but the point is, is this place where Jesus, this conversation is happening, this is a place of pagan worship. And there is, you can see it today. You can go visit it today. You can look at, you can Google this online. There is a place in a cave there where all of these acts of worship, where they had these grottos of the Greek god Hermes that was a messenger to the underworld. There's a cave there that was believed to be the gates of Hades. This is what happened there in the, in the Greek mind. There was this idea that this is the gate to the underworld. This is the gate to the place of death, which is Hades. All right? So keep that in mind. Verse 14, they replied to, to Jesus' question. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. No, Peter makes a statement of lordship, and Jesus says, on this I will build my church. And don't think building. Right? This, the Greek word for church, ekklesia, this means called out ones. It's a gathering. It's an assembling of his, of his people. And Jesus says, yes. He also says that the gates of Hades will not be able to stand it. So on this, this confession of lordship, the gates of Hades will not be able to stand. This is what I'm going to build my church on. So keep these two ideas in mind as we jump. Now we're going to jump back to the to the. the the church in Rome, Jesus' disciples will be recognized for loving like he did, and under his lordship, his churches, his people, would go into the kingdom of darkness, and the kingdom of darkness, the gates of Hades, would not be able to stand it. These are some things that Jesus said about what was going to happen next. So let's jump back to next. Let's jump back to Act 5 at this early part of the story. How did Christianity grow in a world where it insisted Caesar is Lord, and that if you denied this, you could be executed. Listen to what sociologist Rodney Stark says in his book, The Rise of Christianity. 
Christianity served as a revitalization movement that arose in response to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the urban Greco-Roman world. It revitalized life in cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships. From cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. What was early, what was Christianity known for? History suggests they were known for their love. In the name of Jesus, these communities sprung up, and they simply loved their neighbors. They met the immediate, urgent needs of the people of their day with loving kindness. And so this humble beginning of this fifth act in God's story, we see in the book of Acts, the, we also know because of the book of Acts and the letters to the early churches, they did, these people didn't have much else to offer. They didn't have much else to leverage, to influence with other than love. They didn't have positions of power. And so while we might often think that power and influence and power in this world is what we want, it might turn out that if we got what we wanted, it wouldn't go very well. When in Rome, the church got kind of Roman, and it began to influence the way that Rome knew how, which was the way of power. This switch, when Emperor Constantine made Christianity the official state, uh, uh, the state religion of Rome, things changed. There begin to be different stories we now see in the, in, the, in the story of Acts, in the story of the church. The focal point, as we ask this morning, how do we play our part in the story? As being a church here in Bloomington, what does it mean to be part of God's story? What does it mean to be the church? I want to look at history and consider what it suggests. Anytime the church or Christians or Jesus followers try to influence with anything other than love, we go backwards, not forwards. Because Jesus said that one, this one small, by this one small thing, people will know that you're my followers, how you love one another. And once the church got power and institutionalized, large amounts of people decided we're not going to leverage love anymore. We're going to leverage some other things. And as the voice of the church began to ring out more and more through people with power, the great commission began to sound something a little bit more like this. Therefore go and impose my teaching, values, and worldviews on all nations, threatening them with judgment and destruction if they don't obey everything I commanded you. That's not the great commission of Jesus. That is the message of a group that seeks power over others. It is not the message of Jesus, the New Testament, or who we want to confuse ourselves with as we seek to partner with God in this part of his story. We don't win people's hearts by imposing our will. And not at all times in history, but certainly many times, the church decided to influence with things other than love and chose things like power and authority. And what happens when we go, when we do that, we go from winning to threatening. We go from a message that says God is love to a message that says God is going to get you. 
And I won't ask you to raise your hands on this one, but I bet that maybe some of you here have felt this before. If you've been asked about your faith or been asked if you're a Christian, there's a part of you that wants to respond first with, what do you mean by Christian? Before I say yes or no to that, what do you mean when you ask me if I'm a Christian? And I think that thing, if that's in you as it's in me, it's not because of of shame or being ashamed of Jesus. Like, I'm okay with lordship. I'm okay with a conversation that says, yeah, I believe that Jesus is who he said he was. I believe that I'm a sinner, an imperfect person, and I need a a savior. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with with the love that Jesus calls me to identify and, and live my life by. But there's been a lot of things done in the name of Christianity that I'm a little reluctant to want to be confused with. One observation of what happened when the church got power back in the fourth century, um, it was backed by the resources of Rome. It started to take on the form of something that it had lacked for a few centuries, that when all of the growth in this movement in the church began to grow and spread and influence and was known for the things that history suggests it was known for, it didn't have these things. And this is what, um, from, this is an idea from a, a, an Andy Stanley sermon I heard where he talks about the temple model of religion. And I want to explore this for, for a moment. It says, um, because everyone in Rome, in the Greco-Roman world, was familiar with temples. All the world religions had temples. And they all had this, these systems that involved because many of the world religions had these temple systems because you had to keep the gods happy. And the temple model is simply this. It's sacred places and sacred texts with sacred leaders. And in Roman Christianity, that version of it kind of looked like this. The sacred places where the church had once met in homes and was these groups of people who would come together in the communities, all of a sudden there became these huge basilicas. There were these amazing buildings that became the focus point of worship. And along with that, the sacred text, these letters of the apostles, these first stories of the people who had walked with Jesus, listened to him and and heard his teaching and saw what had happened at the death, burial, and resurrection. These texts that had those that were originally given to these churches all throughout the world, they were consumed and all of a sudden there were some sacred leaders that held control of them. The sacred leaders... You can look at the history of, of the church and you can go down through the list of the early church leaders and all I could say at this point, they were men with a lot of big titles and really big hats. But the temple model, it grants extraordinary an extraordinary amount of power to a few people. And all of a sudden, when you start to see these images and you compare that to this simple description of how the church started in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where it's described, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. And when we read about the things that the early church did, all of a sudden we, get to see some di- we start to see some distance between what the church was becoming and what it originally was about. And there's countless stories to be told here from Jesus this, where this temple model thinking creeps into and has always crept into um, the different, even the covenants of God and the way that Jesus called us to live. When Jesus would talk to the Pharisees, he said, you've done a great job to the Pharisees. You've done a great job at raising the traditions of men while ignoring the commands of God. In the early church, there was a group of Jews who said, you know what? We think to follow Jesus, you need to get Jewish first, which means men, you're going to have to be circumcised. Let me tell you how fun that new members meeting was for those new churches. Yeah, we'd love to have you join us. Come be part of this group. Just got to do a little surgery over here. Just ignore what's on that table. Yeah, no. <laughs> Temple model creeping in. You jump centuries later. William Tyndale, 
if you, if you know who he is, William Tyndale was a guy who was killed by sacred men who had control of sacred texts. And do you know what his crime was? He wanted to translate the Bible into the common language of the people. He wanted to put the story of Jesus into the hands of more people. He wanted the good news to be able to go further. But there was a temple model that said, mm, we don't like that. The easy thing to do would be to go down all of these channels, to chase all the places, all the places of heresy and hypocrisy and where we've seen it in the past and where we see it today. Obviously, world history, church history, Bible history would give us plenty of examples of where we can explore that. But I'm pretty sure before I preached further about the heresy and the hypocrisy in this world, that if Jesus were standing here and I was face to face with him, considering all of the examples that we could explore, he might point me to one particular example, and that's me. There are seeds of empire in my own heart. I have my own tendencies to want to leverage power to get what I want instead of, instead of over love. There's a Pharisee in me that often has a problem with other people. He might point me to my own tendencies to succumb to these different versions of this temple model of thinking. But Jesus came to invite us into something new. In regards to sacred places, when a Samaritan woman asked Jesus about where do we worship, where's the sacred place? Where are we supposed to worship God? On this mountain here or do we worship in Jerusalem? And Jesus said, a time is coming where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And back to that new command that you love one another, when you think of sacred spaces and sacred places, when standing on the most sacred ground you can think of it, make no mistake about it, the person to the left of you and the person to the right of you is more sacred to God than any piece of dirt or any building you will ever find. Sacred text, have you ever seen the Bible used to hurt someone? I'm going to leave you to unpack that one. I'm not even going to, there's too much and I've, this sermon has to end. So, Sacred leaders. When Jesus said, talked about leadership, when Jesus looked at leaders and his disciples who were going to, he was looking with the group of people, the first leaders of his church, the people who were to start this fifth act in motion, he sees them fighting. And he calls them together and he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In God's new kingdom, Jesus' followers who are in positions of leadership use their power and authority not for their own benefit, because Jesus used his example, his, himself as an example of what to do with that influence. You use it to love and serve others. Now, when I talk about this in sacred models and sacred places, texts, and people, there have been places and there have been texts and there have been people who have been very meaningful to me in my faith journey. And so I would imagine the same is true for you. But all of these things must take their proper place in the framework that Jesus given. When he was asked what is greatest, we know he responded, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The, like I said earlier, the temple model extraordinary, it grants extraordinary amount of power to a few people. But the model of Jesus, it just grants extraordinary love for everyone. Period. How much? Jesus said, you heard it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus said, no, I want you to love your enemies and I want you to pray for them. Jesus said, therefore, if you're offering a gift at an altar and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go be reconciled to them and then come back and offer, offer your gift. Like we want this thing where, no, 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 I'll just get it right with God and it's good and I'll take care of that later. Jesus says, no, it's not right with God until it's right with the people he's put in your life. These two things, you can't divorce your love of God and your love for God from your love of other people. So as we close this morning and we consider this movement that began to go global in the book of Acts and we see how it overwhelmed and it overtook an empire when it was this subversive movement that was rooted in love and we consider our part of joining God in his work in redeeming in, in, of redemption in this world. What would it look like for you to love like Jesus called you to love? What would it look like for you to consider every person that you were ever eye to eye with, even the people in your family who you have to be close to because they're family and they seem clueless, even the person who you're convinced that their, their one sentence job description at work must be to drive me nuts because no one could be that annoying? What would it look like with the boss who seems to always be taking it out on you even though you did nothing to deserve that? What about the skeptic who mocks you and what you believe? What would it look like for you and me to just with abandon absolutely love and serve those people? What if we said to ourselves, I'm not going to treat them based on how they treat me. A new command is here, and to the best of my ability and God's grace, I'm going to love the people that he's put in my life. Now, if you were to try this for the rest of today, or this week, or a month, or whatever, I just want you to know, it's not about you, and it's not about me. It's not going to work out in a way where you're like, oh, hey, I tried to really do this and I started to do this with my spouse and all of a sudden they're a whole new person and everything's great. Or the per people who used to annoy me are now the most fun people to be around. Won't happen. This is not, if I do this for you, God, then you're gonna do this to this, these people, right? And make them what I want them to be. It's not that. That's temple model thinking. This is just, this is what it means to follow Jesus. To love people, not because they deserve it, but because it's what God has called us to do because he first loved us at a point where we didn't deserve it either. This is our chance to align with God's redeeming work in this world. And this is the way that an empire was once toppled without an army. It can happen before, or it has happened before, and it wasn't just in Rome, but other places around this world. And it can happen again today. Will you pray with me? Father, uh, Lord, we thank you for being called to partner with you. We thank you first and foremost for your sacrifice and your love for us, for this gift that, uh, as Brian said, we can't discount, that we can't, we can't cheapen, we can't add anything to it, God. We just, we just receive this amazing grace. And God, I just pray that this grace, 
it would change us. It would change the kind of people we are. Lord, I pray that of all the things that we hope and aspire for and dream for your church and for the people around us, Lord, God, please help us to orient everything under the fact that our partnership, our way forward, the only thing we have to leverage is your love for other people. Jesus, thank you for your mercy, for your grace. Go with us as we consider what it means to walk in it and continue your story. Amen.